This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with first-time guest Shirley Collier of Scale to Market, and it's Scale to the number two market.com. Shirley, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you. This this is kind of funny because my our mutual friend. Chris Brinker of Ocean 5 Strategies introduced us. Shirley and I have never met. We've talked on the phone a couple of times, uh, rather extensively, actually. And uh, I want to give a little shout out to Chris Brinker for for introducing us. She thought we would uh, be mutually beneficial slash interested in one another's business. And it couldn't come at a more timely uh a point for me. So Shirley, tell people what uh, Scale to Market does, please. So um, a little about my background to put this in context. I am a serial tech entrepreneur. I started, grew, and sold four businesses. And I've been in the federal marketplace for over 25 years. After selling my last business, I decided that I wanted to help other high potential small businesses understand how to grow and prosper, meaning creating value in the complex, highly regulated, but opportunity rich federal marketplace. So you could describe me as a federal business development management consultant. Cool. Um, So how many businesses? Four? Four businesses, all in IT. Oh, wow. Um, so how, how big was the biggest one when you sold it? $26 million. Damn. <laughs> that's, that's pretty neat. <laughs> I don't know if we discussed that before or not, uh, but it doesn't matter. So, so you're doing technically BD for other companies, showing them how to do BD, showing them how to grow their business. To to what end? To create value in the marketplace. And um, and when I say create value, um, small businesses generally take two paths. One is a lifestyle path. They maximize cash flow and take out of the business what they need to support their lifestyle and retirement. Generally, these these companies do not want to grow outside of the small business set-aside program. But the other path is to leverage the small business program, including socioeconomic certifications, to build past performance, develop relationships, Um, develop subject matter expertise, and in some cases, intellectual property. These founders reinvest in their companies and generally do desire to graduate from the small business set-aside program and compete in the full and open market. And both of these paths are viable, but I tend to concentrate on the latter. So these are companies that one day desire to be acquired. Okay. 
So that acquisition part is kind of key, I think, to why uh, Chris Brinker wanted us to meet uh, just a couple weeks ago. I did an interview with uh, Kevin DeSanto of Kips DeSanto. Yes. He, com- he comes on the show usually a couple of times a year to discuss the trends on the M&A side of the government contracting ecosystem. And um, I, I have referred him clients before, but generally they aren't ready. So um, that that's... Um, that's that's a huge thing. So let's let's take it a step at a time. You help companies create value. Can you you take take a deeper dive into that, please? Well, it begins with understanding what creates market value. And I find that the biggest misunderstanding that a lot of small businesses have is about how much the set aside program limits their market value. If your contracts can only be performed by small businesses, then only small businesses are eligible to buy your company. And many of them don't have the capital. In fact, you're more likely to be able to sell your company when you're under $5 million in annual revenue than you are if you're at $30 million. If most of your contracts are small business set-asides. Okay, why is that? Well, it's because there's a limited market for them. Um, if, if it's only small, if, if all your contracts are small business set-asides, then large companies wouldn't, are not going to be interested in that. They okay. want to be able to perform on those contracts. So you'd be more valuable to them as a prime with them as a sub. Yes. And the other thing that I think a lot of small businesses don't understand is that even if they have full and open contracts, the type of work that they do and for whom they are doing work matters. So, for example, a staffing company will have less value generally than a company that has developed some unique software that solves a complex problem for the government. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. So so that means that doing business with some agencies is more valuable in the in the marketplace than others. Some agencies, which are very notoriously hard to penetrate, uh, bring more value in the marketplace. That includes SOCOM, CMS, and many that are in the intelligence community. Okay. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you would bring up the uh, the the staffing side of things because one of the issues I have with uh, smaller companies is, you know, even if if they're IT companies, invariably some small business officer inside a federal agency will say, "Oh, do you do staffing too?" And of course they'll leap and say, "Of course we do." because they don't want to miss the opportunity to do the work. Have, have you seen that? Yes, and there's nothing wrong with staffing. Everybody does staffing. Even the largest companies uh, do staffing. Uh, and if you do staffing strictly of cleared personnel, you can make good money, and you would be a good target for an acquisition. But you really have to have something, ultimately, to, to be acquired to get top dollar for your company, you have to have something that someone else wants to purchase. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. It's just that that uh, staffing question is always kind of a default mode. Um, yes. And I I don't discourage companies from doing it. I discourage them from advertising it if that's not their core value. Yes. Yeah. That's good advice. Okay. So what what other things do small companies not understand about market value? Um I think that um they they don't understand the buyers. So there are generally two types of buyers. There's a financial buyer which are usually individuals who want to buy and grow a small business. They might be retired or cashed out from another business. And they're interested in finding a business with a lot of potential that they can grow and participate in the upside. So these are people with usually business and management expertise, and they're seeking technology-driven companies that can benefit from their expertise and an infusion of capital. The other type of buyer is a strategic buyer, and they're generally larger companies. They're looking to expand their reach in certain agencies or add capabilities in the federal market. They're more interested in the nature of the contracts that you have, with whom you are doing business, EBITDA, cleared personnel. They want to know about cash flow, and of course, they're interested in intellectual capital. Okay, cool. We're going to take our first break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll return with Shirley right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Shirley Collier. She is the president of Scale to Market. You can find her at scaletomarket.com, the number two, uh, scaletomarket.com, and you can find her on LinkedIn. Um, so let's, let's talk about, um, how companies can get into, um, those agencies that, that are traditionally somewhat harder to get into. So those agencies include not only the intelligence community, which I think a lot of people realize that because you have to have clearances, but there are other agencies where a clearance is not required, but they are also really hard to penetrate. SOCOM is one of those. CMS is is also one of those. So my clients frequently will ask me when we start talking about business value, they will frequently ask me, okay, how do I do business with SOCOM then if they're so hard to get in? And I can tell you what definitely does not work and that's going through the small business offices. Now, I hope I don't offend anyone by saying this, but you really have to do your own homework. So find out about in these agencies, their programs, their strategic plans, their procurement forecast, who does business with these agencies currently. You really need to tune into the entire procurement ecosystems of these agencies. And by far, the easiest entree is as a subcontractor. But even those relationships are hard to find. So 
so sometimes my clients will say, uh, well, how do I quickly get on a subcontract? All businesses are always strapped for cash. <laughs> so they want to know how to do something quickly. Uh, and, and there's really no secret to it, but it, it is hard work. So my advice is treat prime contractors as you would your target agencies. Research their contracts, their subcontracting goals associated with the contracts that they prime. Uh, the trend toward category management means that the government's set-aside procurement goals many times are pushed off to these large prime contractors. So when you think about it, it's much more efficient for a government to issue one $100 million contract than 10, $10 million contracts. And as a small business, you, of course, want to get on a prime position on those large GWACs and IDIQs, but you may not qualify uh, as a small business prime. However, when you approach a prime contractor, you absolutely have to bring something to the table. Clear personnel, some intellectual property, some kind of proprietary methodology, relationships, something that is attractive to the prime, not just the fact that you're an 8A or an SDVOSB. Right. So the the on the research side, when you're looking into a prime at, um, you know, pick the agency, it doesn't really matter, SOCOM, um, you can find out who the companies are pretty easily, but you don't always uh, have a clear path to the personnel. So I recommend that companies go to LinkedIn, look up the company, um, run search. If, if you go to the all filters, once you're looking at the employees, there's a lot of searches that you can do that would include the name of the client agency that you're looking for. You can look up program management as a title or program manager as a title or project manager. You can look them up by geographic location. You can do these things in combination. So finding the right warm bodies. Yes. Yeah. And I, I had another instance where a guy wanted to penetrate, uh, a prime out in San Diego. And I just told, you know, I knew who the prime was and I knew who he wanted to reach out to. And I told him to join the FCA chapter out there because the person he wanted to connect with was the president of the FCA San Diego chapter. Oh, excellent. So, excellent. I mean, you know, so, um, so what do you use Bloomberg or, uh, the, the BGov tool or GovWin or what, what do you use? Or do you, are you a deep dive person on FPDS to find information on the contracts? So I use every tool out there. <laughs> I use GovWin. I use Bloomberg government, easy gov ops, gov tribe. I mean, you name it, I use it. Any tool that my client subscribes to, I will use it. I'm so comfortable with these tools uh, one of one of the things I try to teach them is how to be proficient in the use of of these tools, so that they're very comfortable diving into the data. Yeah, and and that's what's going to aim you. That'll give you some names, 
but it'll give you the location of the performance of the contract. So if it's a larger prime, like uh, uh, an SAIC or, you know, Pickett, Northrop, GDIT, they're going to have people in that locale. Yes. So finding the people there is, is not a difficult matter. Yeah, it's like a puzzle though and you have mm-hmm. to like puzzles <laughs> and if you're a good puzzle player and a good problem solver it's like you know where's um what is the name of that little character where's elmo or where oh uh where's waldo <laughs> where's waldo <laughs> yes let's try to put put all those pieces together But Mark, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention regarding getting into some of these hard to penetrate agencies that a lot of people are not familiar with. And that is this relatively new position that most agencies were supposed to have appointed back in 2019 or the industry liaisons. Mm -hmm. That was required. So the OMB sent out a memo in April of 2019 to every federal agency. It was their fourth myth-busting memo, and it requires every federal agency to appoint an industry liaison. And that person's job is to shepherd small, innovative businesses in to see program officials. The, The exciting thing about this position, when it does work, is that it exists outside of the small business program. And that person or people are supposed to be empowered to make introductions to program personnel and to set up capability briefings for small companies. Hmm. So um, April of 2019. Yes. And we're two years down the road from that. Yes. So what is what is your gut tell you on the implementation of this? Well, like everything else that's new uh, in the government, some agencies are on top of it. They're excellent. Treasury, I have to do some shout outs to them, have done an excellent job with their industry liaisons, but others are very slow to respond or they've broken all the rules and they've put the industry liaison in the small business office, which then doesn't have any power. Right. Yeah. I mean... I'll, I'll back you on this one. There are Ozdaboos that are worth their weight in gold and Ozdaboos that aren't worth their weight in anything. <laughs> yes. Um, You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, yes, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to say out loud because I'm hoping that they're all trying, but, not all offices are created equal. That's true. It seems to be personality driven that if you get a good person who's motivated and smart, they can work miracles for you if they want to. Cool. That'll take us up to our next break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, I shall return with Shirley right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Shirley Collier of Scale to Market. You can find her at scaletomarket.com. It's the number two. Don't spell it out. Um, 
Shirley, let's let's talk a little more about that uh, about that program office. Um, first of all, how do you find uh, industry liaison personnel? So there's a directory of industry liaisons that can be found on the acquisition.gov website. So you go to that website and just uh, search for industry liaisons. Okay. Why else would people go to acquisition.gov? Uh, well, it has a lot of information out there. <laughs> I, I thought I was a softball. Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, thank you for for for, uh, for mentioning that. But the procurement forecasts are out there. There, there's just a lot of documents. It, it's it's one of the websites that you should definitely have bookmarked. Okay. So, um, on on the program office side, you can't just call and request an appointment. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, you can, but you're more than likely that you will not get a return call. Okay. Uh, so having so, someone to, to shepherd you in, you know, uh, it helps tremendously. Okay. So how do, you, how do you get that to happen? Well, that's what these industry liaisons are supposed to do. Um, but you have to have something of value. So you give a presentation first to the industry liaison. And what I advise my clients is they have to have a differentiator. And some people don't understand what differentiator means. So I'm going to explain that a little bit. And that is having a differentiator doesn't just mean doing something differently because you can be selling music on cassette tapes. That's different. But you will probably not find much of a demand for that. Not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore, unfortunately. I have a whole case of cassettes. (laughs) Let's go to eight track. <laughs> yes, I know. I just got rid of my eight tracks. Um, so the key to success, in my opinion, uh, Mark, is empathy. Those of us who have been in government contracting for a long time know that generally government employees think that all government contractors are rich. <laughs> At least the founders are rich. Mm-hmm. And they think of themselves as public servants. And most government contractors think of federal employees as having cushy jobs and getting way too many benefits. So there's this undertone when trying to work together. Neither really respects the other. So that's the first hurdle that must be overcome. And as a vendor, it is our responsibility to really understand the agency, the office, the program, the decision makers, their culture, their pressures, regulatory environment, the influencers, the problems they're trying to solve, their mission, and so forth, and to convey our understanding of their challenges before telling them about our solutions and capabilities. So I call this EQ before IQ. Okay. So so many contractors will tell you, for example, well, I understand their IT environment, but they don't take it to the next level and really understand the motivations of the federal decision makers. They're all risk averse. They're paid to reduce risk. So it might be that the program manager wants to be promoted and this high visibility project is what they think will do the trick. 
but the conundrum faced by federal employees and contractors alike is that they are constantly told to be innovative, but don't take any risk, which is counterintuitive. Our job is to say this is innovative, but proven. Or in some other way to convince government to take a small risk with a pilot or demonstration project. And that's the conversation you should be having with these industry liaisons. Okay. Um, I'm, I, I don't, I mean, to, the, the way to overcome that, uh, that, mutual antipathy or mutual misunderstanding of one another first goes back to something that you indicated earlier and i'm sure we'll get a little more on later on and that is you know your ability to build relationships so this is a relationship driven market and and we will get get there uh hopefully in just a couple of minutes maybe sooner than i think so (laughs) so a small business struggle with business development. I've got clients right now that have issues around BD. And, and part of that is they uh, uh, misunderstand what business development is. Some people seem to think, you know, business development people are sales people who should be looking for contracts. Um, you know, in a small company, a lot of people have to wear uh, many hats or everybody really has to wear many hats, but, um, so why do you think small businesses struggle with that business development side of things? Because it's hard. It's very hard and it's expensive. It takes a long time. Very few small businesses are prepared for the, thinking, the planning, and the investment in business development infrastructure that is necessary for sustainable growth in the federal sector. They may start their businesses with a contract from a friend or a colleague and may win a few more contracts by leveraging relationships. And and I don't want to take anything away from that, but it takes much more discipline and investments in people, technologies, and processes to grow from, say, $5 million to $35 million in annual revenue. Yeah, and I haven't run across too many smalls that don't want that kind of growth. Right. But they have to be committed. The, the founder has to be committed to growth. They have to have what I call a growth mindset, which means that they're willing to make the investments uh, to hire, train, compensate, and empower an executive team, for example. Many founders hit a wall at about 10 to $15 million in revenue. They're, they're, everybody in the company reports to them. And they have to decide at that point, do they want to be king or queen or rich? So um, there's an author, Noam Wasserman. He has a fabulous book on this topic, and it's entitled The Founder's Dilemma. And his research indicates that only 20% of founders ultimately take the actions that allow them to be rich. 80% default to being king 
or our queen. So, so saying that you want to grow a business and delegating authority is easier than actually doing it. (laughs) And it makes sense when you think about the skills that founders need in order to start a business, which is determination, independence, and self-confidence. Those are not the skills that then enable you to relinquish control, listen to others, empower others, and serve others. And that is how you grow a business. Okay. So, so Mark, what do you think? Why do you think that most businesses don't understand how to market in the federal marketplace? Well, a lot of it has to do with focus. So when, when I'm advising small businesses, I like to limit them initially to focusing on one or two agencies where they may already have a little bit of business or where their skill set has a higher likelihood of penetrating that market niche, uh, focusing on both the agency and the primes that serve the agency, building relationships, but you know, largely focusing. Too many companies fall for what I think is, you know, I call it the shiny rock syndrome. Yeah. Ooh, here's something cool over here. Let's go get yes. it. Um, And it's not in their core agency. It's slightly out of their core competency and it's distracting and you're wasting resources pursuing something that is going to go to someone else. Yep. I agree. And a lot of uh, tiny businesses, when they first get started, they really don't know what their core competencies are (laughs) and they don't know where to go. And they do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But after they've been in business for a couple of years, they can start analyzing their past. What types of contracts were they most successful in? Did they develop some expertise? And what is the nature of that expertise and how can it be leveraged in other agencies? Yep, exactly. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll return with Shirley after this to wrap up. Back in a moment. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today one more time with Shirley Collier. You can find she is the president of Scale to Market, and you can find her at scaletomarket.com. That's the number two, not the word two. Um, so Shirley, um, can you give us an example of a small business that navigated these processes successfully? Yes, uh, there are many paths to success, but let me give you a few examples. And, and in this case, success is defined as cashing out in some way. So the first is a cybersecurity company that was started by three engineers. They were very good technically and through word of mouth, were able to grow the company to about 15 million in annual revenue. They were working 80 hour work weeks and burning out. So we helped them restructure their executive team, build a business development infrastructure, which in this case meant hiring a director of BD, licensing some data aggregation software, installing a CRM, putting in uh, defined processes, setting up a new compensation plan. They then diversified their client base. 
and were better able to describe how they work and the results that they were able to achieve for their client agencies. They doubled in size in two years, including some pretty substantial full and open contracts. And the last time I talked to them, they were entertaining several offers to be acquired. Cool. So that so that's one path. Um, this next example is a company in the financial services arena. They were started by someone with subject matter expertise who previously worked in the federal government. The founder had lots of connections, but she was so busy trying to fulfill customer requirements and grow her business that it was just too much. So the route that she took was to get a mentor under the 8A program and to form a joint venture. The company grew to 26 million and was actually acquired by the mentor company. And everybody was happy with that. Was that a pro protege mentor situation? Yes, mentor protege. And they formed a JV to grow um, the, the business, both of their so businesses. So was, was, was the partner another small? It was a large but relatively small, large. So it was okay. a company that had uh, what was that was around fifty million in annual revenue. So it had graduated from the small business set aside program a couple of years ago, and those are really good mentors <laughs> because they've just recently been through the same thing, learned a lot through the school of hard knocks, have some capital now to invest, and can be good partners. Okay, cool. So uh, and and they they acquired. That that company primarily for the intellectual capital, what? It was for the intellectual capital, which included the contracts. And in this case, um, she had some subject matter experts. And this was in finance, subject matter experts that were in demand. So that increased the value of her company. Cool. All right. So, um Let's let's begin to wrap up here. What advice would you give to small businesses that are struggling with any of these issues? My advice is to first look inward. Devise your strategic plan based upon your core competencies, your strengths, and your passion. For years, I've been recommending the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. It's been out for about 10 years. When he and his team analyzed companies that outperformed their peers, he discovered that their strategic plans could be represented by a Venn diagram that was the intersection of capabilities, profit margin, and passion. And this model has stood the test of time. But then test your strategic plan against what the federal market is doing. Who will buy your products and services? Why would they buy from you? Who do they buy those products and services from now? How do they buy them? Under what contract vehicles? Understand the ecosystem around your targeted agencies. You know, they're very different from one another. Department of Homeland Security is very different from Health and Human Services, for example. And understand the FAR. Contracting offices have much more leeway to use tools such as the SAP, the Simplified Acquisition Procedures, and the Commercial Items Clause, FAR Part 12, to direct awards to contractors. 
And COVID has changed procurement practices. So getting back to OMB and their and their memos, they issued a number of memos last spring as COVID shutdowns first hit us that relaxed the SAP thresholds to give contracting offices more leeway. So the SAT, the threshold, went from $250,000 to $750,000. And for commercial items, the threshold was raised to $13 million. This means non-competitive direct awards up to $13 million. And that will probably be in effect at least for the remainder of 2021, given that we haven't licked COVID yet. Uh, so I think the, those rules are going to stay in place um, for now. Um, so, you know, and, and I also advise my clients to leverage the strengths of others, consultants and advisors like you, Mark, and teaming partners. You absolutely have to learn how to team strategically uh, to grow. And my last advice as we wrap, wrap up here is to not give up. The second hardest thing that you can do is to start and grow a small business. But the number one hardest thing you can do is to start a small business to sell to the federal government. No argument there. It does. <laughs> it, 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 it takes time. It takes persistence. It takes knowledge. It takes relationships. It takes a ton of research. It takes resources, uh, mentors, advisors. We have a market filled with great associations find one that suits your niche um so uh last question for you uh what what is an ideal client for scale to market the ideal client is has a profile of one there the founder has this growth mindset typically they are anywhere between five and about 15 million in annual revenue, and they want to press on the accelerator to get to the next level, whatever that means to them. Cool. Thank you. Um, as you may recall, this is not my day job. Uh, I advise companies on the marketing side of the uh, government contract ecosystem, but I focus a lot on a couple of things we touched on today. Uh, particularly differentiation, helping companies figure out what makes them different that will resonate with buyers. Uh, and to support that, building the subject matter expert platform, uh, substantiating that with content, and then deploying your plan through, at least in part, through LinkedIn. So if that's of interest, reach out, Mark Amtower at Gmail. Again, you can find Shirley at scalemarket.com. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
E-commerce merchants, does consistent monthly growth while hitting ROI goals sound good? Here at AdRoll, our customers constantly let us know it feels good. AdRoll helps you attract new customers and bring shoppers back to finish the sale. Integrate your e-commerce store with AdRoll and manage display, social media, and native advertising all in one place. Sounds good, right? See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today.